Sony get wiped out. All this and more coming up on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Sony Source. A rare story. Suit up or shut up. All these stories and more coming up on this week's show. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Hello, chaps. Another week of This Week in Retro. Uh, I am back from a break, although I didn't take a break from This Week in Retro. I just had a week off of everything else to try and recharge. Did it work? No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) What is it about taking a holiday as an adult? Just every day seems to get filled up, whether it's DIY, I had builders in, had nieces and nephews over, which was lovely. But, you know, you're constantly on looking after them. So it wasn't really a break, but at least I gave my brain a little bit of a break from um, the usual work thing. So I do feel slightly refreshed. Um, Apart from the point when my niece poured the kettle into my toaster. So that's drying out at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) So there we go. toaster on? Uh, no, thankfully it wasn't. So they, okay. they survived that ordeal. Um, yeah, we'll see if the toaster has. We'll let that dry out. Anyway, that's nothing to do with retro. Um, did come up with some interesting news. This Just before we started recording, I got an interesting email from Google, which I think will probably sit nicely in housekeeping. So I'll talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Chris, you've got a picture of a PC on the screen behind you. And I, I believe do. it came yeah, 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 yeah. from the UK. Video. Tell us about it. Yeah, and no, I do. It's the last machine I I, I built, um, not bought. It was built um, out of bits, um, some secondhand bits, and a brand new case before I before I then left the UK for Australia. So it basically ended up sitting with my parents so that they could communicate with me via MSN back when we did that before Skype kind of took over. So it's kind of really exciting to bring back the last you know part of my UK computing history, if you like. Um, so I've been tinkering with that, trying to get it working because it really isn't happy. Um, but I'm just glad it made it back here in my suitcase, which is how I transport. So this it. is um, this is a video on your channel, is it? I haven't seen it yet. If it is, oh uh, yeah, there is, is one about it. Yeah, but yeah, I don't. Yeah. Okay, yeah. We- so does the hard drive still was it was it still set up as you left it? Or was it wiped? Oh, no, unfortunately. Um, and now you know what it's like. You sort of have conversation because it's been 20 years since I moved over here, right? So now that I'm sort of getting back into it and discovering that, no, it's not even the same operating system that I left it with, my mind's going back to, oh, wait a minute. I remember my dad saying something about the hard drive dying. I remember my dad saying something about having to replace the power supply, for, for example. Sure. So until eventually it got to the point where I bought him a laptop because the machine was just, you know, it wasn't working for him. And it was old at that point. And so I had said to him, you know, stop using it. I'll, I'll sort you out, but don't throw it away. And I'm so glad I said that because now I've got it to to play with. Fantastic. I only asked because you mentioned MSN and I have seen mm. some choice conversations on retro computers that I've been refurbishing in the past. When you open MSN or ICQ or Pigeon, one of the third party uh, instant messaging clients, you know, there is stuff that I could never in a million years show on a video. So it's like, okay, I just go and scrub my eyes now and close right. that window. Mm. It's, yeah. but, but it is, you know, it, it, it's a piece of history um aside from the, <laughs> the things that you don't want to read there's other things being discussed which are um just part of social history and it's quite nice to put yourself back in that context and see nice. how people were talking about things yeah yeah i forgot that this... msn logged the chats oops yeah i gotta go and do <laughs> some stuff <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I did watch the video. I enjoyed it. That era of PC, you, you want to, you want to bring it back as an, a Windows ninety eight PC. Yeah. it's perfect for that. There's, there's, it's not, it's not too demanding to get a PC that works fantastic for that, and you'll be able to do it. And there's loads and loads and loads of games you'll be able to play on it. It's, it's going to be fantastic for you. Well, um, and that machine, it was, it was a good build for Windows ninety eight because I used to do video editing on it in Premiere. Mm that may or may not have been an official license and um 3D Studio Max same thing um but so you know it, it really did do the the hard yards in terms of you know the grunt mm. work and that was well, got half a gig of ram in it <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So from uh, retro PC to bringing us bang up to date with gaming I believe Dave you've been hooked on a new release yes. yeah Baldur's Gate 3 or Baldur's Gate 3 as they pronounce it in game um is I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Um, it came out um, recently, past couple of weeks. It feels like a proper old school game. I'm really able to get myself immersed in it. Um, there's nothing breaking me out of the immersion, trying to get me to buy game coins or connect to something or look at this instead. None of that immersion breaking stuff is going on. It's doing extremely well on the opening weekend. 1,225 years of gameplay. In other words, 10 million hours played on the first opening weekend. It's massive, absolutely massive. And this was a genre that when I played it originally, it wasn't that. RPGs were big, but not that big. They weren't mainstream. Neil? I'll tell you what, if you want to train AI, there's a perfect source (laughs) of uh, human behavior. (laughs) 1,225 years of gameplay. Watch that AI. See what you come up with. Now, the reason I'm mentioning it is because it is fantastic, but it's fantastic to see a single-player focused game that's complete when you get it. It doesn't feel as if part of it has been cut off to sell it back to you. It's doing. It's answered all of the complaints that I have in modern gaming are, are, are resolved by this. It's great. I sometimes get cynical and jaded about the state of games, but this answers all my questions. I've been playing it for years. Um, I, I I would strongly suggest you don't get it because it takes it'll, it'll take your life away from you. Uh, but I, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Do we have any news on a big box release, or is that definitely a thing of the past? Then? I think there is a collector's edition, but it's not. It's not going to. I don't think it's going to help you play the game any better. It's got a few trinkets and certificates and that kind of thing in it. You know the kind of the big box release. I don't. I don't particularly like. Um, mm. I haven't actually got Google to find out. Oh, you yeah, have um, a little look for that. Um, but yeah, sounds like we've had a good week, and um, let's go into housekeeping. It's your favourite part of the show. Is there any housekeeping to be had? So the first piece of housekeeping is, sorry if I was a little bit loud for the intro of the show. <laughs> My <laughs> mic was a little bit turned up, so I've just turned it down now. So uh, that should be fixed now. Sorry about that. And thanks, Chris, for spotting that. So we covered the Internet Archive um, and them being sued about uh, putting books um, and not following the rules on um, lending books out during the pandemic, which I think was a a public service, but uh, publishers weren't so keen on. Um, They are now being sued over 
the Great 78 Project. So the Internet Archive is trying to digitize old 78 RPM records for preservation purposes. Um, however, uh, they've now got more than 400,000 recordings and they're trying to get these in there and clearly that they are there is preservation going on because of this. However, the Internet Archive is not having any gatekeeping on the content. Anyone can get it. And some of these things are still being sold by the record labels like Bing Crosby, Chuck Berry, Duke Ellington and so on. So there's a fight going on there. That's quite an interesting one there to find out what happens. Um, I firmly believe that copyright of um, 70 to 120 year old stuff um, should have expired. Uh, It's ridiculous if that's still been exploited commercially. So um, my view is that anyway. So I I, I am firmly on board with the Internet Archive and I hope they win that one. And um, another uh, update for housekeeping, busy housekeeping this week. Nostalgia Nerd has been on TV He's been, um, Pete, as he's uh, sometimes known as, uh, he's been on the, um, what's the name of the show? The, 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 yeah, Neil. Oh, the one you really like? Retro Electro. Retro Electro. Retro Electro Workshop, that's it. Um, He's been on that. People thought I was a bit too critical in that, and... Perhaps I was. Uh, I I tend to focus on the the, the negatives, and it tended to be... I think it's because it could or should have been a bit better than that. It's because it was something I potentially interested in. I was disappointed in it. Um, but yeah, I, I still think it's just daytime TV and much money can you make kind of thing. But um, people have been saying good things about it. People have been saying it, that there's more to it than that and there's, there's there's some genuine enjoyment to be had once you get past what is a, maybe a necessary evil for it to make television. So Nostalgia Nair's been on that. I don't know what he's been doing on there, but... But I imagine he's the he's one of the people you would go to if you want a talking face on retro. No, I've heard, I've not watched it yet, but I've seen the chaps chatting about it in Discord. And uh, in the land of TV, you know, the rules can be twisted. Any anything can happen in TV land. And apparently, Nostalgia Nerd runs some kind of shop and sells them um, a ZX Spectrum or a C sixty four or something. <laughs> they go seem to buy one. Does he run the shop? Don't quote me on no, that because I haven't not, actually not, watched it. I, uh, that's just what I've seen people in Discord saying happens on, you know, on the show. So I, I again, need to go and watch the, it. The truth is actually good enough. The truth is good yeah. enough. They just have the confidence to tell us the truth, and it would be it would be better television than this. Yeah, Don't, they can quite legitimately go and visit him and then go, Yeah, I've got one of these on the shelves for you. Quite yeah. Yeah. I haven't watched it, so I can't tell you how how it is presented if it's presented as I run a shop. Let's go and watch it and find out first hand. So go and check it out. Retro Electro. But that's enough housekeeping um, for this week. We talked last week of yet another example of how Nintendo like to throw their weight around when someone dares to breathe on their intellectual property or even just does something within the law that makes Nintendo feel uncomfortable. And thus Dolphin was removed from Steam. This week, it's the turn of Sony, who have actively been called out this time by programmer Dominic Sabluski, and he's put Wipeout, a game that put the PlayStation on the map in 1995, he's put the game online and made it completely playable within a web browser. How did we get here? Well, uh, the Wipeout code was originally leaked back in 2022 via Twitter uh, or X, 
Now, a quick question. Do we re- refer to historic tweets as X's now, or do we still call them tweets up until a date? And then what do we call them? <laughs> the Up until that date, they're tweets, and beyond that date, they're tweets. It's Twitter, and it's staying that way. I'm not calling it X. <laughs> it's X. So uh, beyond that date, they're kisses. <laughs> um so uh, it was kissed. No, it was tweeted because we're going into the past by Twitter account. Kissed. It's not kissed, is it? Surely not. You've made that up, haven't you? Is it? It's X's. X's are kisses. They're kisses. They're, they're definitely kisses. <laughs> X yeah. sounds. Te- yeah, yeah. I X this. What? Shut up, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> now it was tweeted by account Forest of Illusion. And um, it was found that the source code, when shared, was quite frankly an absolute mess. Uh, Those with the skills to pick it apart discovered the original PlayStation code and then layer upon layer on top of that of hasty hacking to get different ports released, such as the PC version. The code for that was there. And um, what's described as a nasty hack was layered on top to get ATI Rage video cards working with it. After a lot of detective work and elbow grease, the article on Kotaku.com says, he managed to resurrect a modified playable version of the game with an uncapped frame rate that looks crisp and sounds great. He still recommends two other PC ports over his own, Wipeout Phantom Edition and an unnamed project by a username called Xproga. Twitter However, <clears throat> Yes, Twitter Proga. <laughs> Kiss Proga. However, those that, those that don't, those he says, don't come with the original source code, the legality of which he admits is questionable at best. And so we come to legality. That's the big question. The article makes quite a leap by saying that one view is that Wipeout is basically abandonware since the source code has leaked with seemingly little action by Sony and no attempts by the company to remaster, port, or otherwise bring back the PS1 classic. Yes, Dave. What's the legal definition of abandonware? And that's a rhetorical question. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good one. Um, so, I mean, the, yeah, the, they caveat that that paragraph by starting it off with one view. One view but, is that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sources say one view. Sources say so. Yeah. They're not fully committing to that. Um, and it sounds like they're treating it in the same way that they might that you might a trademark i guess you know if you don't use a trademark if you're not seen to protect it with the the weight of you know you know of your company behind it and and resist people using your trademark then there is an argument that you know the weight of your argument is is completely diluted if you try and defend it five years later down the line having not done so or at least that's how i understand it but this isn't a trademark this is code that was leaked without permission just because nobody has officially tried to fight back does that make it abandonware does that make it free to use does that make it fair game don't know so we go over to daniel's blog now and i see on there he describes it as a nearly complete rewrite so it is in fact new code but it is written with sight of the original code because that was leaked and he's had access to that. So this reminds me of the whole clean room argument that does hold up in court when done properly. You're legally able to reverse engineer something without infringing on any copyrights associated with the original design. And that means not using any proprietary code. It means recreating the behavior of original code and not straight up copying it. But that's that's to do with creating a... That, that's came from a, a BIOS made, an IBM PC BIOS. 
but mm. surely it's not to replicate the actual output of the game. Surely you couldn't reproduce a game like Super Mario, for example. You couldn't produce Great Guiana Sisters, which doesn't have the Super Mario code in it, but it looks so much like Great, uh, like like Super Mario, that it was deemed to be bad enough to be taken off shelves. Mm. So it's not just that you you can't producing a, 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 as much as as close as you can get one for one likeness of a game and then say ah yeah but it was done in clean room that that yeah it would, it would be like it would be like reshooting Blade Runner scene for scene with different yeah. actors and saying this is a different film we usually hear the clean room argument used for example with electronic arts reverse engineering how to circumvent Sega Mega Drive um, copy protection yes. and, and produce yeah. their own cartridges. Yeah. That it's sort of to thing. make something that's compatible with the system. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I mean, we're not lawyers. We're not experts on this topic, but this seems to make sense to us. Uh, Daniel's blog is well worth reading. It's a fascinating read about the inner workings of the game itself and rewriting the game. So I would encourage you to have a look. Um, he does conclude with the following line If anyone at Sony is reading this, Please consider that you have, in my opinion, two equally good options. Either let it be or shut this thing down and get a real remaster going. I'd love to help. So as job applications go, I, th I think that's a pretty good shout. Look, I've proven I have these skills. Um, get this man a job at Sony to do a remaster. There we go. So what do we make of this situation, guys? Do we have any thoughts on this, <clears throat> on Wipeout in general? Because Wipeout didn't just stop with one game. You know, there's there's a lot more to it than that. Thoughts? Dave, let's go to you. I should probably tell people what Wipeout is because not everyone will be aware. Uh, it's a track racing game uh, where you're in a small hovering vehicle. I'm trying not to say pod racing, but I may as well say pod racing from Star Wars uh, because that's what the, the pod racing in Star Wars Phantom Menace felt like. Um, and it, but Wipeout this came did, first. Um, it, Wipeout came yeah, this first. came out a few yeah. years before, before <laughs> Phantom Menace, so... Did George Lucas play this? Um, <laughs> and in fact, in the Star Wars games, there's a mini game in Knights of the Old Republic where you do play basically a cut-down version of Wipeout. Um, <laughs> so it, it's nice to see that go um, go even closer to it. There are inspirations before it that could be called oh. out, like uh, Powerdrome and um, Stun Runner in the arcade, all, all kinds of, sort of futuristic races. That, yeah, Eliminator, yeah. And, I think. Uh, yeah, lots of different things that, that, that mm -hmm. have that kind of vibe going on. So this isn't the first one. But this is the first time that I think it was made as fast and frantic um, as it is, you, you fly about on this track, uh, you try and fly over speed ups and avoid obstacles, etc. Um, and it really did benefit. It was the right game at the right time for 3D in the mid 90s. It, it looks, it, it's fast, it's brilliant. And they came out with a few of them in the late 90s. The first game, there's then XL, which is a sequel. And then you can get those on PC and PlayStation. Then there's Wipeout 64 and the N64, and then Wipeout 3 in the PlayStation only. And they're all the same game, really. Um, and they've just kind of doubled down on the gameplay and polished it and lent even more into the frenetic rave-style techno music. But it's good. I mean, it's great. Neil? Yeah, just like Mario Kart or F-Zero or anything like that. It's, it's same, yeah. you know, It feels like the same game, but they, they've evolved it. More polygons, more textures. Yeah, features. they polished it. It's the same basic gameplay. It's not like, you think back to other franchises like Fallout or Grand Theft Auto, the games have drastically changed over the years, but this hasn't. Um, 
they're good for a they're good for a quick blast, and they really do show you what the PlayStation could do back in 1995. Now, as for the ethics of it, I'm totally fine with it. From a legal point of view, I agree. It's certainly, if it went to court, I wouldn't be betting against Sony. Um, but I'm not a judge. I don't know these things. Um, I've had a look at the one from 2017. It's basically the same game, but it does feel a bit... It doesn't have the same... The graphics aren't the same. The graphics feel a bit similar to all the other games just now. It'll be on the... Sorry, Dot's attacking the microphone. It'll be on the same Unreal or... What's the other What's the other game engine everything uses? One Unreal and... Unity, uh, yeah, it'll be Unreal or Unity there. And it, 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 the games look the, a bit the same because of that. But it's still basically the same game. They've just kept releasing it the same thing over time. So maybe they have been doing their own remasters of it. I mean, you can make games look very unique using these game engines. We're not talking about yeah. shoot 'em up construction kit here. Um, mm. <laughs> but it, it's it there's, there's a feel to use. them. Yeah, there's, there's a feel to them. Um, I don't know. I, I I recognize it right away. It's a modern game because it's used that engine. I, I don't know. I think it's more just about recycling code and assets than the engine itself. I, you know, I've even seen it on some of the Switch games I've been playing lately where it's like, oh, this just feels like the same game again, but with different main characters. Um, but there we go. Anyway, sorry, I, I interrupted your flow. No, I finished. I, I was turning off the tap. The flow is over. <laughs> Chris, turn the taps on. Turn the taps on. Down the drain. Well, similar to what Dave's just said, really, and the, the, the fact that comes to mind when I you know, looked at this story is the fact that Sony have made Wipeout remain playable in terms of her franchise. And uh, the latest version I've played is the PS4 iteration, which is absolutely fantastic. And if you have VR in terms of PSVR, you don't need it. So it's a, you know, it's a full game without VR. But if you do have uh, PSVR... It's one of the best VR experiences you'll have on on the platform. It's absolutely amazing. And it doesn't even feel like, you know, sometimes when they just add VR to an existing game, it doesn't quite work. Not the case with Wipeout in VR. It's it's absolutely astounding. Um, you just, uh, obviously, the trick to it is you have to be in cockpit. You get the choice of going in cockpit rather than behind the ship. You can still go behind the ship, but I think that's, you know, just begging for, for motion sickness. Whereas in the cockpit, you've got a, you know, um, a logical point frame of reference that's static um, and then everything outside whizzes around you and actually I don't get sick with that game at all. I can play that for hours, um, which is great. Um, and so the, the PS4 version, basically, um, in case you're not familiar with that, it's packed with all the content from Wipeout HD and Wipeout HD Fury and Wipeout uh, 2048, and that's a quote from the gamesman. Um, and the, it's basically called the Wipeout Omega Collection. Uh, and it's also a, a remaster of previous two titles in the Wipeout series, Wipeout HD with all its uh, Wipeout HD and Fury expansion and Wipeout 2048. Um, so that's essentially what the PS4 version contains and it, and it's brilliant. So it's not as if Sony have sat on this IP and done nothing with it. It's, it's alive and kicking today. Uh, and so because of that, I, I don't quite see this whole case as being justified in terms of it's just sitting there dormant. Um, and, and again, you know, as you guys have said, not an expert, but if it's being justified by the fact that it's been reverse engineered and, and rewritten rather than a copy, why does it have to be wipeout? You know, if, if you know, make your own game or something that's similar or maybe even better, because clearly you've got the skills, um, 
But if the success of, of this project is because it's Wipeout, well, guess what? That is actually somebody else's IP and, the, and they're justified in protecting it. Just looking at this, there were 12 Wipeout games so far. So mm. just because you're using the leaked source code from the first one doesn't make the series abandonware. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. still a no, trademark but, name that is in active use. Um, the series now, if you, if you play the 2017 version now, it is still basically the same game, but mm. it's quite it's quite distinct to what the old game was. So if someone wants to say, says, I want to play the original Wipeout, I want to go back to the original Wipeout and play it as it was, then this source port, kind of source port, it's been through so many changes, it feels like the the most authentic way to do it other than getting an old Peter, like, like the fact you're... Your, your your new PC, Chris, would do it. Um, do it do it very well. Um, other than get, getting the old PC, out, that that feels like the best way to do it. Uh, I mean, the, the the version 2017 is a kind of modern remake of it, so I I kind of get that. And uh, yeah, I, I'm not I, I I don't have any. I'm not going to lose any sleep over what what this has been done. What's been so done the, I, don't, the- I don't worry about Sony losing money as a result. The 2017 release, I just quickly looked it up. I was just checking my facts because I tend to buy things when they're already old. But that is the one I'm talking about, the Omega collection. Yeah. I didn't feel like it was sort of blemished by having a modern look and feel. It just felt like a, a natural progression of the original franchise to me. I've I definitely got – I've got nostalgia. And it, it, it's it's yeah. my nostalgia that doesn't mean it's better. I've got nostalgia for the way that graphics looked in 1995. Yeah, that makes stuff. sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm maybe not if, it's actually better, but it's better for me. What you could do is you could you could fire up the the modern version and then take your glasses off. <laughs> <laughs> you guys keep talking about the 2017 version as if it's the newest one, but there's Wipeout Merge that came out for um, iOS and Android devices in 2021 and 2022. That'd be interesting. Um, are we is mobile gaming mobile real gaming? <laughs> is mobile gaming real gaming? Uh, it is on, if it's on a Switch. That's where I get confused, Dave. If it's on a Switch, it's real gaming. You can put Switch in your telly. Let me just yeah, but you can line. play it in your hands as well. Is PSP oh, no. real gaming? Let me just read you a line from this Wipeout Merge. Unlike previous entries in the series, the gameplay consists of being <laughs> a racing manager and timing the deployment of weapons during oh, no. races. <laughs> that doesn't sound no. like Wipeout to me. No, that's not. That's not Wipeout. Wipe that one out. Yeah. What I, what I do want to quickly add, though, is I mean I think where Sony failed, and maybe why this is seen as something that needs to be released in terms of a modern iteration of the original PlayStation One version of Wipeout, and I get that that's not what we're talking about here when we talk about the more modern versions. They had an opportunity. Sony had an opportunity to to make that publicly accessible when they released the you know um, the failed sony playstation mini um only a couple of years ago uh, a few years ago and you know they had a had a list of about 20 games some of them were okay like battle arena to shinden i've got nostalgia for that not a lot of people do um and wipeout i mean wipeout is one of the titles that launched the console we would all agree on that and it wasn't on that and that was a crime um they may have had a reason, though, because at the end of the day, I, I think they would own the IP because they essentially own Cygnosis. Um, I think I'm right in saying that. Um, but don't forget, Wipeout was built on the soundtrack as well, and it's, it, it's use of CD audio, which was quite new at the time, um, and they had main names on it like Leftfield, Chemical Brothers, and The Prodigy, for example. 
So maybe there there is a leftover sort of IP issue with using the same music. And just like the fans will jump up and down saying, well, you didn't include Wipeout on this mini, they would jump up and down even more if they said, well, you put Wipeout, but where's the music or why has the music been yeah. changed? So yeah. you, if there's one thing you can't make happy, it's a fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let's just step back and appreciate for a moment how far we've got. You can play Wipeout in a web browser. That is pretty <laughs> mad. So, you know, we've, we've gone from in our lifetime, you know, a lot before this, but the PlayStation One was a pivotal moment in gaming. I think for all of us, we could look at it and say, "Wow, this is a you know a, a seismic shift in in gaming and, and the introduction of 3D texture mapped gaming at an affordable price in our lounges." And um, now we can just pop it up in a browser and play that launch title. So it's quite wonderful. Do go and check it out. The the notes um, or the links are in the show notes to go and see that. And also, do please have a read through of the developers' blog because it's, it's fascinating to hear um, how the physics were worked on, how the models and um, texturing uh, was programmed. It's all well worth a read, so go and check it out. We are sponsored this week by Pixel Addict Magazine. Pixel Addict Magazine comes out every single week, if that's a sixth week. And we must be due a new issue soon. Mm. Um, need to seek to them, uh, Joanna, and see if we can get the... What the what's coming up in the new issue? It must be due out soon. I feel as if uh, the one we've got just now has been the, the Commodore sixteen one's been out. That was the plus sorry, Commodore plus four has been out for a while. Um, Pixel Addict magazine is uh, a physical magazine that comes out every six weeks. You can get it in your newsagent. You can order it online. You can actually get back issues online as well. I found out. I didn't realize I did that. But you can go and order all the issues if you want to uh, to have them all. Um, and you can get PDFs as well, or it's available in your newsagent in Australia if you go through a three-month time warp. <laughs> um, just looking through, uh, we're currently on issue 13, and one of the articles in there is a retrospective on the fun of buying PCs in the 90s. Um, ah. Was it more fun to buy a PC in the 90s? No. <laughs> but it's different. it was very different. Uh, yeah. um, mm. PC buying in the, in the 90s was wild because... It's things I, I don't unless you were around in the nineties to really to really I don't think you really get how rapidly things things change then these days I'm I'm using um, Baldur's Gate three runs on ultra settings it seems perfectly fine on my 1080 Ti my 1080 Ti must be what seven years old now um, mm-hmm. there was no way in the nineties you could do that you'd have to be using hardware that was imagine much you, more yeah, up to date imagine using a, yeah. a 1993 graphics card in the year 2000 no way <laughs> just be no way insane people just think you're an yeah. idiot what are you trying to do getting that I'll never work through it in the bin yeah. you might as well use an Amiga yeah <laughs> oh. Oh. I thought I thought we were going to get through an episode without mentioning the Amiga although oh, I'm sorry. Chris mentioned it already about the Wipeout Amiga edition oh <laughs> oh he did yes no, yeah no so um, Omega I, I mean, edition yeah. I, I'm going to go and read that article because I haven't read it yet. But uh, part of buying a PC in the 90s for me also was having to budget for it. I had to spread the purchase over yes. several months. I'd buy the graphics card yeah. one month. I'm going to get mm. the PSU. I've got 20 quid left for a case. I'm going to buy the cheapest case I can find and put all these expensive components <laughs> yeah. into Cut it. My hands and then the it's going to rattle when the fans come on. Doesn't but matter. Whatever. <laughs> um, I do, that was I part do like of the, the fun. 
Yeah, I do like the jankiness of that kind of era, the, the kind of 1995 to 2005, those things were a bit jankier and you could do creative things with suspending your hard drive with rubber bands and all sorts of stuff, trying to get the, that, that, that resonance going. Um, these days, you just have to spend another 60 quid on, on something to do it. Yeah. What I like, I really like the, the, this, the fact that the place that I used to get all my parts from in terms of graphics cards, CD-ROM drives and stuff, they still exist. They're an online supplier. Back back then it was via a catalogue, but they still exist, mm-hmm. and that's just amazing. That's nice. Mm. So Pixelatic Magazine, remember we were talking about them. Um, you can go to their website. The website, Chris, is? Pixel.addict.media. Well done. I said them the wrong way around. <laughs> Well done. Uh, so thank you very much for sponsoring us. Go and buy the magazine. Very few 8-bit game companies survive for long. Most of them couldn't manage their transition to 16-bit or beyond, and some of them didn't even make it that far. And like supermassive stars, they burnt out quickly, but they shone very, very brightly. There is one supermassive exception, though a company that were tremendous in 8-bit times, really tremendous, stayed relevant in 16-bit times and are still doing it now. And I think many of you will know who I mean, but many of you won't. And I don't mean Codemasters. Codemasters would have been a good guess. Um, but I think this 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 house are even better. And I mean Ultimate Play the Game. Now, they started out in 1982 trading as Ultimate Play the Game, uh, but where the much less exciting named Ashby Computers and Graphics Limited. That was the real name of the company. So that's my reckoning 41 years ago and not 40 years as the Guardian article submitted by Dr. Fudge Knot uh, suggests. I'm not quite sure what the 40 years anniversary is. I think it must be because that's when their first game came out. The first game was Jetpack. Uh, and according to Moby Games, that's May 1983. It's a 16K spectrum, or if you watch the retro cash repair show it's the spectrum zx um it's a simple game but it looks great and it sounds great on the spectrum and more importantly the gameplay is bang on in my view the best spectrum games are the, are the ones where they, 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 they aim to keep it simple and they get it done and they polish it rather than just managing to throw out the door having not quite done what they intended to. Now, this is a deserved classic. They did a few more 16K games before moving on to their first 48K Spectrum game later in 1983, Lunar Jetman, which added a bit more depth to the original basic gameplay. Uh, the gameplay in, the, in their games was quickly moving from arcade-style quick games to longer games with exploration elements. A tick attack, and then saber wolf, and then night lore, which came in as they call it, uh, filmation, and we know it's isometric. And I, I don't think isometric is actually. I'm sure I've read that it's not the the correct term for it, but it's we call it isometric. It's good enough for me. Um, but according to the Guardian article, they were already looking into the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, which was out in Japan as a Famicom, but wouldn't get to the UK until a couple of years later. But they predicted it would be the next big thing, and they were right. They didn't abandon the Spectrum at that point, not yet. Alienate, Nightshade, Gunfight, Gunfright in Isometric, and then Cyber Run in the Lunar Jetman mold, and a few others um, would spell the end of their fantastic career covering 83 to 87. That's only four years. We're talking about how uh, I'm using a seven-year-old graphics card. In those four years, gaming evolved 
uh, on microcomputers. By 1987, we had Dungeon Master. We'd had Ultima 4 for a couple of years. We'd Maniac Mansion in 1987. Games had really changed from the roots as either basic mainframe text-based strategy adventure games or as best as we can manage arcade games into their own thing by this point. Computer games had really turned into to, to something, something different. And you can see it with Ultimates games. Now, some of you are wondering how I'm saying they lasted 40 years because they stopped in, in 1987. And in fact, the two founders, Chris and Tim Stamper, actually sold their company in 1985 to US Gold and started another company called rare and that's what you might have heard of you must have heard of rare now i'm not going to say that ultimate and rare are the same in fact they, they aren't the same thing it's it's fair to say they're the same people and they had intentionally split off into rare so they could keep ultimate separate and ultimate separate it's quite a clever thing to do because it meant they could sell the entire ultimate business on to us gold while showing nintendo what they could do and getting rare off the ground as rarely produced games until 2007. Uh, they were bought out by Microsoft in 2002. Uh, Martin Hollis of, uh, of Rare told Eurogamer in 2012, he said, Microsoft and Rare was a bad marriage for, from the beginning. The groom was rich, the bride was beautiful, but they wanted to make different games and they wanted to make them in different ways. And that's a bit sad because the um, that was really the stampers finishing off with that but over the years they've made some spectacularly successful games on consoles uh, donkey kong country killer instinct goldeneye 007 perfect dark games i've not really played because i've not got around to consoles but maybe someday i will so it is kind of 40 years it's 40 years since they first smashed onto the scene with the astonishingly good spectrum games and for a couple of decades they kept smashing out of the park neil what's your rare and ultimate memories Gosh, so many to pick from. Um, I, I think if I try and think back to my first memory of one of their games, it was either a game I owned, which was Sabre Wolf on my Amstrad CPC, or it was Jetpack on my friend's Spectrum. I can't remember which I played first, but I would certainly have played more of Sabre Wolf because the CPC was the system I had and that was the game that I had to play on it. I was completely mesmerized by the game. Um, it felt slicker than a lot of my other CPC games. Um, it was just, it just felt quicker. It just felt, you know, very well put together, which was a, a hallmark of a lot of their, certainly their earlier games there as well as Ultimate. Um, Jetpack, I've always said, I've said it on the show before, could stand shoulder to shoulder with arcade games of the era. And that's just on a 16K specy. You know, you could put that in an arcade cabinet and it would be great in 1983. I would have put my money in it. And it's no surprise when you dig a little deeper to learn that Tim and, Tim and Chris Stamper actually started out working on arcade conversion kits before they even did the specy stuff. So for example, Chris converted Space Invaders to work on Galaxian hardware. They were they were working at that level, on the hardware level. They did, didn't just turn up and go... Well, they didn't just turn up and go, I've learned... It is because Space Invaders came first and Galaxian had tile-based hardware. So... Mm. It was a bit of a downgrade, but as a learning exercise and as an example yeah. of the intimate knowledge they had of the hardware, that. that's really interesting. They didn't just go, oh, we've learned how to program in basic. Now let's learn how to program mm. in assembly language. Yeah. Started at the hardware level. And that really shines through. Um, they also released some of their games, uh, their 16K games on ROM carts. So I've got a few of them, including Jetpack, um, Psst. <laughs> that game and uh trans am uh and that gives it even more of an arcade or console like film with the instant mm. loading of the rom cartridge i really like that 
I've got a feeling Chris is going to talk about Goldeneye, so I'm going to skim over Goldeneye. <laughs> um, but, but the legacy, if we follow it through to the present day, there's things like Sea of Thieves, Battletoads, um, including a Battletoads version in 2020. And they're currently working on a game called Everwild. So still active. That goes all the way back to these early days. Um, and it's a very timely story that you've brought up this week, Dave, just by coincidence, because uh, this Friday I'm flying out to Norway for an expo called Retro Messa. My first time there. Really excited about it. David first time Dokes. At the expo and the first time in Norway. Uh, yes, both. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David Doke's going to be there of GoldenEye, Perfect Dark fame. In fact, his face was texture mapped on some of the GoldenEye characters, so it's going to be a bit weird seeing him following me around. <laughs> peering down from the uh, grate in the toilets above me. Um, Kevin, <laughs> sorry, that happens in Goldeneye, but it's, it's James Bond doing it. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed, David. Um, Kevin Bayliss will be there. He joined Rare in 1987. David Wise, composer at Rare from 85 to 2009. Will Overton, uh, an artist at Rare, and a bunch of other great people. So a huge, you know, chunk of the old rare team are going to be floating around at this expo and i'm going to try and make some connections see if i can get any of them to visit the cave at some point or make some videos so very exciting and it just goes to show how important their heritage and their history is that they've all been booked to go to this expo and they're all being flown out there and they're all special guests that people are buying tickets to go to and see them it speaks volumes of you know of their heritage no Chris and Tim Stamper, but they are famously reclusive when it comes to interviews and expos and things like that. I'd love for them, them to turn up to a week. show one day. But yeah, I, I've tried in the past, but yeah, you, you just get nothing. And I think that's how they've always been. Yeah. Chris? Well, I mean, from all the games we've talked about, Tick Attack is one that really stands out for me. Um, one of the very sp first Spectrum games I remember playing before I had one myself. It was a friend called Daniel's House. And I still love it. If I load it up, I love playing it today. It's just so playable. And it's it's quite a big game um, in terms of, you know, the amount of rooms to explore. I've still actually not finished it. I really need to to get my head around how you actually complete the game. It is. It's a very hard game, but it's it's so much fun. Uh, what amazes me about and, and Jetpack comes into this as well. And you've said how it's you know stands up against arcade games is how fast the spectrum actually moves sprites around the screen. I mean, I remember playing on it, but then you kind of forget how good it was, and you load it up expecting things to be quite jerky and slow, and they're just not. It's it's a really smooth experience. So, it's because of the pe people criticise the spectrum for the color clash, hmm. and the color clash is the result of what the Spectrum is designed to do, which is using attributes rather than colours for every single pixels. They have colours for that block of pixels. Mm. And it means that they can use much less screen data, which means that the little Z80 processor can do a lot more than what it, what it, what it might be able to do if it was full colour and didn't have the colour clash. So if, if, if you have Spectrum games that are designed with the colour clash in mind, games that are designed for the Spectrum, mm. they come out absolutely tremendous and they oh, come yeah. out rapid like this. It's, it's, they're such good games. Yeah. Or just games like one of my favourites I've talked about in the past, like Last Ninja 2, which is just black and white because it, it works. Yeah. It gives a good, a good feel. Um, mm. Colour clash used well, looks great. Used badly, it looks a bit like you've painted your game with a paintball gun. But um, yeah. <laughs> it can still move rapidly because that's yeah that's yeah. how it's designed. Great spectrum's great. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, and then moving on to, you know, into the rare era. I mean, yeah, obviously GoldenEye. Um, just so many memories of playing GoldenEye. What a standout game. You know I love first-person shooters. I actually love the N64 on release, although it gets a lot of hate these days when people look back and realise they don't have three hands. But at the time, you know, you could make sense of it. Um, and is that Gizmo or Lily coming in? Is it what? Is that Gizmo or is that Lily oh, coming Gizmo. in? Hello, Gizmo. Hello, Gizmo. Oh, there we go. We're just letting a cat in. Um, we, but never what get, a- we never get Gizmo in this week in retro, so it'd be nice if you did. <laughs> yeah, it'd be see cool. if I can get her. You carry on talking. Yeah, okay, I'll carry on talking. Uh, but one of, one of my key memories of, of Goldeneye was me and a mate, um, well, was a housemate at the time, we actually got two TVs and we split the RF um, through a, a Y splitter so that we could actually, our Gizmo's on screen. So for those of you watching on YouTube, there's Gizmo. Yeah, fantastic. For those my of you cat- listening, Gizmo's still there. Yeah, Gizmo's still there. No, Schrodinger's cat, is it there? Is both there and not there? If you're listening, it's not there. My cats are antisocial when I'm doing podcasts. They're, they're never here. But anyway, but yeah, so me and my mate Nick, we actually, we split the signal out of the um, the uh, the N64. So it's just the RF into two TVs, tune them both in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we put bin bags over the, the top half of one, bottom half of the other. <laughs> and then you do that, right? So this is early LAN gaming without, you know, the console doesn't have network mm-hmm. play, but we made it the equivalent. And um, and then we, we put it on Golden Gun. So it's one shot kills. And that really got the heart pumping. And it's before you could do it, you know, uh, by taking yeah. your PC around a mate's house or doing it online like we do now. And then the so other have one. You that- seen, uh, sorry, Chris, have you seen the new Quake 2 remastered? I think it has an eight-player split screen on one screen. So, you know, oh, you're, you're going to need sticky tape and cardboard for that. <laughs> now, that's cool because Quake has never had split screens. Watch. So that would be really cool. It's too fast to watch what seven other players are doing. You'd never get any hints from that. You'd be yeah. too focused and you'd go, that would work. work great. Screen Fantastic. cheating is real. Screen cheating is real. Um, and funnily enough, Not talking about people. screen cheating, uh, well, when you're talking about a small CRT, so uh, the other game that we played for uh, plenty of uh, hours on was Perfect Dark, so another rare game. And the weapon that, that comes to mind is the Farsight weapon. So it's like a sniper rifle that could shoot through walls and it had thermal imaging so basically it didn't really matter where you were in the level you could hone in on somebody that was you know several walls deep find them zoom in on them and take them out with a single kill now that's where i'm sorry but you know in in our house screen cheating kind of became part of the strategy and you'd almost die of a heart attack when you realized that your mate was honing in through the walls on exactly where your player was standing and there was nothing you could do about it except run around in circles and hope they missed but yeah Great games, absolutely great games. Well, for me, my my memory is of the isometric puzzle adventures. So this is this is when they started going from um, just purely arcade quick games into longer games, more exploration. There, I loved that kind of thing. And before I got into the the deeper adventure and the strategy games, I liked those um, because they were they were going in that direction. Um, the console. Uh, but forget all the console stuff. The years in the spectrum are what I, I think matter for me because I don't think you can deny that what they did on the spectrum was 
incredibly influential. They took, if you look at what their what their game started off being and what they ended up being in just those few years. In fact, there's two years between them selling it and US Go. What they did in those two years was incredible, and you can see their legacy continuing. I mean, Bitmap Brothers, Cadaver, there's all sorts of head over heels, all that that kind of isometric stuff came out, and um, yeah, such an important thing. So, uh, well done on, on on forty years of um, of of that kind of thing 40 years of i don't know what you 40 years of 40 years since jetpack they'll call that 40 years since jetpack that's what we'll see well done today i'm going to talk about one of my favorite genres of games that i've never or at least hardly ever played which neil you and just say your favorite genre is games that you've never played but you've, you've gone there anyway <laughs> there's, there's quite a few games in the catalog if you want me to list them all i think we seem to list them every week now it does sound like an odd thing to say i'll grant you that um but what it is basically i love the idea of mech games so you know where you're getting a you, you pilot a, a massive battling robot um uh and you know just you know, powerful guns and rocket launchers and stomping on smaller enemies and battling with larger ones. It just fascinates me. Um, but it's a genre I've hardly touched at all. So this all comes about because uh, Pitfall Advanced 2250 shared a link on the subreddit to an amazing article on timeextension.com by Lewis Packwood, and it really is well worth your time reading. In the article, Lewis basically talks about Battletech centers, uh, that were the brain told of Jordan Wiseman, uh, Jordan responsible for Shadowrun and Crimson Skies franchises, to put the name into perspective. And I loved Crimson Sky on the Xbox, by the way. Absolutely great game. Um, but these Battletech centers, they cropped up in the USA and Japan in the 80s and 90s, uh, where you could basically sit in a fully encompassing pod to control your battle mech. So it was a fully immersive sit-down experience. Um, but rather than just one pod in an arcade, the Battletech centers were dedicated locations and had heaps of these pods linked up so that you could play with or against your friends. Uh, and let's just put this into context, okay? So this is around 1990, basically, when the when the actual centers cropped up. Um, and, you know, back then, most of us, if we were lucky, we got to take, you know, our Amiga or our ST round to a mate's house and play one-on-one uh, linked up via RS-232. Whereas this was, you know, this was fully immersive, 4v4 mech warrior combat um the pods were originally powered actually on amiga hardware and they used uh, basically a 3d world with scaled sprites to represent the other mechs uh, and these were later updated to full flat shade polys so proper 3d uh but then you know the the technology moved on and they jumped to using pcs to power them with full texture maps um, and fully 3d and texture map worlds uh, and towards the end of their life, they even had a global leaderboard going. And when you went to a centre and, and had your game, you'd actually get all your statistics of your gameplay printed out for you. Um, very similar to what you would get if you ever did laser tag back in the 90s or even today. And that's a key part of sort of pulling you into the game. What did I do right? Where did I, What did I get, do wrong? Where did I get hit by my mate? And then going in for the sort of the revenge battles. Um, really good uh, business mechanic and game mechanic. Uh, but the article isn't just about. Sorry, Dave. All I can think of it when I think of of that is paintball mm. from the Fast Show, 
Remember when don't remember that. the little sketch that he would do with the two guys that took it far too seriously? <laughs> There's always two guys that take it far too seriously. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine if you went to these things, there would be people that just got far too far too serious about it all. <laughs> that was me was that with you? laser tag. With laser tag it was. I had a spreadsheet. So I would I would actually retype my printout into my spreadsheet and I would map my progress over time. What were my scores? What were my hit ratios? Where was I getting hit? I was in the league, right? I was in the league. So this is Tunbridge Wells Laser Quest. I was in the league and I was sixth position in the Premier Division. And one of the main reasons I got there was because it wasn't beyond me to walk in on a Saturday and say, have you got any spots left in in any games? And the staff would look at me and go, well, there's one spot in the next game, but it's a kid's birthday party. And I just look at them and go, yep, put me in. Because I just knew the more points I got, the higher I go up the leaderboard. I was selling my SNES games to get another game of laser tag. That's how addicted I was. Did you go and shoot kids? Yes, I shot kids to get my leaderboard score up. You got less points if they were non-league players. It didn't bother me. Uh, this is is this a confession? To, anyway, anyway, let's move on with the story. If, if that was me, I, I wouldn't have admitted that. I'd, I'd have written it off and blocked that memory away, wrapped it up, and said, "No, that, that memory has to." No, part of me is actually part of me is actually still proud that that's how I did it. Ashamed, you mean? Uh, no, no, proud. That's how it went down at Tunbridge Wells Laser Quest. That's it. We're hardcore. We still went. What? What about pre? No, let's not talk about Laser Quest. That's a whole other topic for another time. Anyway, the article isn't just about the BattleTech centers, which is what we're talking about here, um, but it's actually about the inspiration behind them and how they grew out of a successful tabletop gaming franchise. Um, first of all. Um, and I don't want to spoil it because Lewis has clearly put a lot of work into this article. So I, I really do implore you, go and read it for yourself because it's a long article and there's a lot of meat in it. Um, but it contains details about how Jordan Wiseman was inspired by a ship bridge simulator for training. Uh, he'd gone in to do that course and then bummed out to follow um, basically his dream, which was he, he wanted to create a Star Trek bridge simulator that involved several players. So he'd seen these bridge simulators for ships, actual ships, and thought, nah, let's let's do a Star Trek version and gamify this. This would be a great business. Um, and he actually tried to do the proof of concept by networking his Apple IIs, which were the machines he had at the time. That didn't go too well. Um, and then his sort of business segued into, he actually did some very successful role-play game stuff that were fully licensed uh, with the Star Trek franchise um, and tabletop games as well, and then into the Battletech franchise, which is where he finally made the leap into creating these, um, these well, what it was originally going to be a bridge simulator, but it became these Battletech centers uh, for multiplayer gaming. Um, of course, I've never played one of these centers because I was in the UK, but I do know they were mentioned in the UK TV show Bad Influence by their stateside reporter, Zed Wright. I remember seeing that segment and they actually looked awesome. But it does remind me of those, you know, in the 90s especially, we've got those VR centres cropping up across the UK where you could go and play against your mates and, and quest with them. They were mainly sort of fantasy role play, but in VR. Battletech wasn't in VR. It was, by the way, it was just 2D screens, but a 3D immersive world. Um, so help me out here, guys. Did you did you play any mech games? And obviously, most of us wouldn't have done Battletech unless we went to the UAE. US or Japan at the time. Did you play mech games like Mech Warrior? Or do you remember any of these 90s attempts at putting network gaming and VR into like a dedicated location, gaming location? Neil? 
Yeah, lots of memories. I mean, MechWarrior <clears throat> on the PC, I remember being one of those games. I think it was Sierra that published it originally. Um, and it was one of those games that you could really put your PC to the test with. You know, it was all texture mapped and there was a lot going on. And it was like, um, I can see why you'd like it because there is a like, kind of a flight simulator element to these games. Your systems management and you know, going to waypoints, locking onto targets, all the rest of it. It's like a flight sim with legs attached to the plane, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, in terms of dedicated venues and machines, of course, in the UK, we had virtuality, which were those early virtual reality systems with dedicated cockpits and even treadmill type um, settings that you would stand up in. And there was a MechWarrior game. Now it was called XRX, E-X-O-R-E-X. And it was exactly this kind Twitter. of game. It was a uh, it was a networked mech warrior battle. You were in a city. You sat in cockpits with VR headsets, two joysticks, one in each hand, and you hunted each other down. And I did have the pleasure of playing this at the Trocadero Centre in London. Um, it was probably my first experience of a land game. Certainly, my first experience of anything more than a one v one serial link game. <clears throat> and I think there were six or maybe eight of us. I think it was six connected up. Um, so that was a great experience. I've never really meshed fully with the Mech Warrior type game. It's, you know, I've never really got into the appeal of it. And I know there's a lot of lore and stuff that surrounds Mech Warrior games and anime and things like that that all tie in with it that I've never really followed closely enough to get that into it. But I can appreciate it as a genre. And of course, whenever we talk about VR, I have to be reminded of the TV show Cyberzone presented by Craig Charles. We've talked about that Remember before. That. It wasn't a MechWarrior game, but it was representative of the hype that was surrounding 3D and VR at the time in the first half of the 90s. How to dress and, up three minutes of gameplay footage into a Craig Charles prancing around shouting about how exciting a, a three frame per second uh, piece of footage is. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and how, uh, how VR was going to be the next big thing. Companies were pumping money into this technology and betting the farm that it would take off. But as soon as the big players that were making the hardware, like virtuality, died off, nobody else really had the appetite to to spend that much money on further developing in it. So it fell to the software. It fell to things like the PlayStation that we've talked about uh, and the evolution of the, the 3D effects, 3D graphics. Before we were at a place again where people said, okay, these worlds really now need VR headsets for us to fully immerse ourselves in them. So um, anyway, I'm going completely off on a tangent there because I think some of the ones that you've talked about and I've watched the videos of that you've shared, they're not VR. They're the sort of virtual worlds in a cockpit with multiple screens and then all your whole dashboard of MechWarrior controls. So That's it sort right. of predates some of the virtuality stuff as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I am fascinated by it. And I guess, you know, this kind of game has its lineage going all the way back to... Maybe even Battlezone, maybe even Wireframe Atari's Battlezone in the yeah. arcade, which had a, a periscope you could play it in. So it was trying to immerse you in that way with a 3D world. A lot of history in this type of game, even mm -hmm. though I'm not a massive Mech Warrior player. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, do you like to suit up and stomp around and stamp on people in your Mech Warrior? I like the idea of doing that now you mention it, yeah. Um, <laughs> it always makes me think of Warhammer 40k. Um, now, Ooh, yeah. I didn't know this was, a, this was a thing in arcades. I mostly stopped going when I started um, drinking and going to clubs and going to raves and so on, and the arcades kind of fell away. Um, and I, I'm not aware of one near me. 
and I, I think I can already identify the problem, and we've talked about it. Maybe the theme of this week's episode is talking about how quickly things moved in the 80s and 90s. If you were to invest in and to kit out um, a, a, a space with all this technology, within a couple of years, you'd have to throw it all away and replace it with, with, with new stuff. You'd have to get a lot of money in in a short amount of time to make it viable. So maybe that's why they didn't, didn't last so long because of the, the hardware investment you had to make. I didn't know about them. Um, sounds like a great idea. Sounds like good fun. Um, and I like the idea of mech games. I've never I've never really put any time into any mech games, but I like the idea of them. I wonder if they come out with any that were as compelling as like Star Wars or TIE Fighter, uh, Star Wars X-Wing or, or Star Wars TIE Fighter, where there's objectives and there's a lot of stuff going on and you try and you, you're trying to make your side win and all the rest of it um there's a couple of pc series that people talk fondly about and i've watched i'm sure lgr's done videos on them but i've not touched them so i don't know why because i, I really love the idea and it sounds like something I, w- I would enjoy strategy and action and um and simulation all put together i don't know why i've not played them hmm. I, th- I think some of i think some of them like the met warrior are sort of tour of duty base but i'm not sure if they're more of an arcade slant than a strategy slant don't know gonna, gonna have to dig them out and 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 get on, onto them um what this does make me aware of though is i mean that just here in perth and i'm sure it's the same in the uk we've got a lot of vr centers whether they're racing game centers or some of them are first person shooters but you go as a team and it's a dedicated warehouse you know this is properly set up this isn't some some kids playing about with you know quest twos this is properly set up with you know collision detection and everything, and they put you in a scenario, and uh, you know while while they exist in case time moves on and, and these businesses aren't viable, we need to make use of them um, to actually see what this experience is like. So I think for me, this is a kick up the the backside and go, yeah, get out there and have some fun with some mates. I'm certainly going to do it. Um, it also makes me wish that when I'd bought a back in the day, when I bought an Atari Jag, I got Iron Soldier because that's a mech game, and when I repurchased the one not too long ago from a shop here in Perth. I could have bought Iron Soldier and instead I bought the racing game, whatever that's called. And ever since I came home, it's like, I should have I should have grabbed Iron Soldier, either as well or instead of. But anyway, because that's apparently a really good game and they're few and far between on the Jag. Um, but I do recall playing MechWarrior on my PC, but I think it was briefly, and I think it was probably just a demo on a cover disc for PC Zone or something. I certainly didn't spend a great amount of time in it. This is sort of just a, a genre that sort of escaped me. So I think I just need to play some modern mech games, maybe, because I think this is a franchise, a, a genre that you can enjoy with modern technology. For me, that would be preferably in VR, and the ones that spring to mind are Code 51 Mecha Arena, but apparently that's only available in the USA. Not sure why that is, but anyway. So here in Australia, it's Rigs or Nothing, I think, if I want the VR experience on the PS4. Um, and Rigs, if you're not familiar with it, yes, it's mech, mech uh, combat, but it's sort of got this sort of sports commentary over the top of it. You know, it's sort of a re- arena style rather than military tour of duty. So it's not really what I'm looking for. So I think I'm going to have to go looking at them again, back to the Mech Warrior franchise. PS4, it's available. It's not VR on PC. Apparently you can add VR, but so that means I'm staring down the, the barrel of buying in a Quest 2 just for making that happen i don't know more and more things are pointing towards me getting a headset for my pc but yeah anyway um it is a fantastic and very detailed article 
um, with plenty of footage to links on YouTube as well where relevant, including newsreels from when these centers were first emerging and even some of the training videos that you would have to watch when you went into a Mech Warrior Center, uh, sorry, Battletech Center. Um, and, you know, we're talking about videos that featured names like Jim Belushi, uh, Judge Rain, uh, Reynold, and Weird Al Yankovic, uh, um, you know, just to name a few. And it really makes me wish that I'd had a chance to play at one of these centers. Um, yep, Lewis has done an amazing job. So do check it out. Links are in the show notes, as always. Time now for our community question of the week. Last week, we talked about CRT screens. Are they the best solution for retro gaming? Yes. Are you clinging onto yours for dear life? Are you sitting on a stockpile of Trinitrons? pretended that we were neutral on that, even though all three was like, no, CRT, CRT, CRT. Are you a CRT snob? Or perhaps you just don't care what you use. Perhaps modern solutions are now just as good. Let us know your opinions. So, Dave, have we closed contest mode? I've just hit the button there. There we go. Refreshing. There we go. So... Refreshing. Doesn't change and, uh, <laughs> it's sorted here. That's it. That's it. Yeah, it's now in. Okay. Yep. So I'll go with the first one. Top answer is from our good friend Richard Shears. He says, I'm attached to the good old CRT. I'm happy to use flat panels as need arises. However, for me, part of the nostalgia is that phosphorus glow with scan lines. The 8833 stretched image in an attempt to mitigate the three-quarter screen because, well, Amiga. Or that beautiful budget Amstrad monitor paired with the CPC-464 that really did elevate the 8-bit experience. I also, will say that the, the CPC monitor is actually really good, surprisingly good. It's um, it's very resilient, they, you know, as, as is the CPC yeah. itself. They just seem to keep yeah. on working. Um, I'm always surprised how how good the CPC is, given it was Alan Sugar's company that made it. So, yeah. Um, he says, also, the games um, just look better with effects like um, differing. I think he means dithering. 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 Giving Auto-correct. an impression of more colors and the machines could rent, that the machines could render. I also feel that the simple DOS screen is more alluring when viewed via an electron beam. Okay, it's not all roses. The migraine-induced flickering from trying to be productive on an Amiga won't be missed. Anyway, now the interlaced flickering headache is preventing me from reading my response here. I'll shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Richard. Who's next? I'll go next. I'll go next. And it's Control-Alt-Reese. You may have heard of him. Hello, yes, it's me, the guy who once submitted a video to RMC Livestream where I counted my CRT collection and came to the grand total of 17. I'm pretty sure I've picked up some more since then too, and I know he has. He'll be about 30 now. I will say that a matching CRT really completes a setup. A DOS PC with a nice matching 15-inch or 17-inch CRT, the Cub Monitor, for BBC, the cool little 9-inch Atari ST monitors. I think they're 12-inch. Um, I could go on. Arcade cabinets with flat panel screens are travesty, in my opinion. Yeah, arcade machines with that, that flat panel, especially when it's right up in your face, right up at the at, at, at the in your face, makes it so obvious what it is. I think an arcade cabinet with a flat screen could be made to look okay with a bit of effort, um, maybe even some kind of 
stuck on kind of lens or something just just to make it yeah. um but anyway I'll, I'll continue with what reese said rather than my opinion all that said i use my <laughs> mr multi-system pretty much exclusively with modern flat panels and that suits me fine i hdmi modded my original xbox and n64 recently sold and was happy to use those the same way so for me, it's a look and feel thing. If the monitor matches the system and makes it look complete, then I'm all for it. For example, I love the concept of CRT Eliminator for video capture and maybe streaming PC stuff, and I'm planning on picking one up, but I'd still be sat in front of the CRT screen. It just feels right. Yeah, so if we go back to the, the, the story last week, that this is a, a way to, to steal the signal to steal the the digital signal before it gets converted into analog. So for streaming, that's perfect because you can be sitting in front of the CRT, but you can be streaming out as best quality as you can to Twitch or, or YouTube. Idea. That's a really good use. Thank you. Reese. Mm. Jess B Tech Dep says, I remember doing my electronics training, working on CRTs, and in that respect, I have fond memories of using and repairing them. That said, I do miss the weight. I don't miss the weight. Sorry, there's an N missing there. I don't miss the weight. During my training, my dad's ridiculous 28-inch Grundig TV's tube died, and I had to replace it, my first tube replacement as an 18-year-old. The sheer size of the thing. Years later, I inherited the TV, and when we got married, it served as our only TV, meaning every night I'd have to carry it upstairs, <laughs> no way, so my better half could watch TV to sleep. Don't know that I'd done that. I'd have done that. Um, when we got our first LCD, I, I was so happy, but I do miss playing the PS1 or N64 on the big TV. Yeah, I, there's no way I'd have carried a TV upstairs just so the missus could watch TV while she went to sleep. Good on you, man, for, for doing that. I don't think I'd have done that. Uh, and that's a great usage case for flat screen TVs, which are so infinitely lighter. Um, but yeah, like I said there, PS1, N64, there are certain things. It's got to be a CRT. And I've said that myself. It's got to be a CRT or it just doesn't look right. So this week's question of the week, um, I think we're going to touch on group gaming experiences, whether it's like me. Did you first experience a, a multiplayer LAN type session on virtuality? I think we can allow perhaps, can we allow laser tag to sneak into these answers, guys? Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. so did you shoot kids what? for points? <laughs> what what kind of yeah? Simple. What was your first group gaming experience that made you just look around and go, "Wow, this is incredible! This is not me versus the machine. This is me versus my mates, or in co-op with my mates, and it's a whole new gaming experience, and I love it." Tell us all about that. Tell us about the feelings. Tell us about the game. What were the systems that you were using? And um, the venue as well, because this is kind of a, a, a thing that's died. The dedicated venue to gaming, be it an internet cafe um, or somewhere like the Trocadero or a, an arcade that expanded into having things like virtuality machines. We just don't see that kind of thing anymore. Um, although they are creeping back now with virtual reality. You are seeing dedicated VR spaces, aren't you? But that's that's distracting us from the question. <laughs> Hopefully I've been succinct enough. Head over to our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, where you can answer the question. You can also submit questions or um, stories, in fact, for us to comment on and talk about in next week's show. And it's perfectly all right to go there and tell us we're wrong. But we do ask that if you tell us we've we've said something wrong or we've done something wrong in the show, don't just say you're wrong, Chris. 
It's always you, Chris. Do you just say you're wrong, Chris? It's always me. Tell us why we're wrong, and then it can um, stimulate future discussions, and we can all learn from the experience. So get we, involved. We will get things wrong. We will get be wrong. We, we, we will have an opinion that's not right. We're, we're talking off the cuff on these things, and we're not experts. So no. feel free to connect us. No, I don't. All, you- all my personal experiences and opinions are wrong. <laughs> next week we will be missing neil neil will not be here will you still be in norway is that why you're not here so i'll be in norway um if i can find some way of getting my laptop onto an internet connection i will at least be your was it z right that used to do the roving reporting on um, bad Mm. influence I, i can try and do that for you um if not then i'll just miss the week and i'll be back the the following week but I've got someone booked in. I've got a guest booked in next week. In fact, we've got guests coming up now. We've got a few guests coming up. Um, so there's a guest next week. I won't say who it is, but you will. Um, you may recognise them. Um, um, and we will see you next week. Maybe, maybe Neil. Maybe Neil will. Maybe he won't. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much for tuning in this week and have a lovely weekend. Take care. Bye. Bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RNC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agema, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.